Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Amateur Gourmet Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Roberts, the Amateur Gourmet, and this week's episode is all about LA, dining in LA, what's hot, what's not, where to go, but actually it's a more complicated conversation than that, it's more nuanced, we talk about what makes LA so interesting and great. My guest today is Farley Elliott, who is the editor of Eater LA, which is pretty much the go-to resource for where to dine out in the city. He's also the author of Los Angeles Street Food, A History from Tamaleros to Taco Trucks, which came out in 2015. And our conversation really runs the gamut from the James Beard Awards, which completely shut out LA this year, to Wolfgang Puck and everything in between. So without further ado, here's my talk with Farley Elliott, all about LA. All right, Farley, welcome to my podcast. I've been wanting to have you on for a long time, and so it's nice to have you here finally. Thanks so much for thinking of me. Yeah, well, we have a lot to talk about because this week's theme is L.A. restaurants, and the James Beard Awards were just this past weekend, although when this airs, it will have been a week ago, and L.A. famously got shut out this year, Um, and I'm curious, what are your thoughts about that? You know, I think it's, I love that we're already using famously. It's been, you know, it's seven to 10 days, depending on when we're listening to this. But <laughs> uh, no, I, I don't think you're wrong. It's, it's a pretty shocking thing. Listen, I, I will preface all of this by saying part of my job is essentially to be like a really positive guy when it comes to the dining scene in Los Angeles. And that's a part of the job that I do take very seriously. I think the second largest city in America having zero recognition on a restaurant front for the James Beard Awards. And that's to say nothing of also essentially getting shut out of media front for writers and all the many people doing awesome work here, I think is kind of ludicrous. Uh, I'm not a big East Coast bias sort of person. I try to take a bigger, broader view that there's always more to cover than can ever possibly be covered by organizations like the Beards. But we haven't had some kind of shutout like this since like 2017. And I think our dining scene is the best in America. So yeah, yeah, it's silly. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it kind of it kind of reminds me of like when Crash won the Oscar for Best Picture, and it's sort of like that moment where you realize maybe awards aren't that legitimate after all, and it's they're meaningful to the people who get them, but they they don't necessarily articulate what is the best in any particular category. It's just where the the vibe is at that moment, or where the judges are sort of leaning for whatever reason. Exactly. I mean, it was interesting though because I put it on my Instagram. You know, I put this graphic of like that meme of the guy looking at the other girl's butt while his girlfriend. And so I did that thing. It's hard to describe. Anyway, but I, I basically brought up the fact that Ellie got shut out. But I got a lot of comments from people like somebody from Minneapolis and I forgot where else who were really grateful that their cities got representation at the James Beard Awards. So I think that's probably worth acknowledging is that some other cities that don't normally get recognition did get recognition this year, which is nice. Yeah, I think every city feels like an underdog in some way. And and even within cities, certain communities, neighborhoods feel like underdogs themselves. So the people who Mm -hmm. are in Minneapolis who are rooting for Minneapolis to do well absolutely deserve that recognition. And there are still restaurants in smaller towns than Minneapolis across America that are doing fantastic things that are never, unfortunately, or almost never going to rise to this level. I think it's probably best and maybe a little bit more instructive to think about awards as like doorways, right? You have Mm -hmm. to to pick the style of doorway that you want to go into. Are you a world's 50 best person? Are you 
a James Beard person? Are you a local LA Times 101 best restaurant person? Because within that doorway is a whole room of possibilities, but not everything is going to fit onto every list. And so it's okay. Ultimately, the Los Angeles dining scene is not going to be made or broken by the James Beard Foundation Awards because the reality is we're doing so much great stuff at a local level that we're going to be just fine whether or not an East Coast nonprofit decides to say nice things to us. <laughs> True. And I agree. I mean, I, having lived in New York for a bunch of years and traveled a bunch, I really do feel like LA's dining scene right now in 2022 does feel like the most exciting place to eat in the country. I mean, I just went to New Orleans uh, a couple months ago, which I would say is up there, obviously, as one of the great, I mean, it is the great food city of America, I think, I mean, in the grand scheme of things. But like, you know, just like, that while that still has some some exciting things, it's like LA just feels so relevant. It feels like there's just so much happening in terms of different cultures and different backgrounds, and where it's, things are getting elevated here that aren't elevated in other parts of the country. And so, I'm curious if you could talk about what you are most enthusiastic about about LA right now in 2022. Yeah, you're kind of asking the question at a really pertinent time because we are in this sort of pseudo pandemic, is quote unquote over time, and the way that we We've seen the restaurant industry be shaped and transformed by all of that is, is really creating new experiences for diners and new operators alike. The thing I'm most excited about is the idea that new restaurants and, and dining styles are starting to come to the forefront. There was an entire subsection of people who made a living Maybe there were former line cooks or people who just wanted to dabble in the restaurant industry by selling food out of their homes, driveways, things like that during the pandemic. And that deservedly got a lot of attention. The question becomes, what happens to those people now? Some of them have gone back just straight into the workforce and other people are diving deep into things that really mattered to them. We're seeing vermouth bars open. We're seeing tin fish bars open. You know, we're seeing people mm-hmm. who took one dish and have ran with it to an enormous amount of success. How many on your Instagram feed um, images have you seen of, you know, filet fish sandwiches around town or mm-hmm. Bunkus Bagus's little uh, Indonesian wrapped banana leaf yes. set up? Like, that's, that's what I thought of immediately when you were talking about the pandemic. Yeah, yeah especially their, their cookies that are like multicolored or not cookies. I don't know what those are, but yeah, yeah totally. Exactly. And so that sort of thing, you could not have approached a person with money in 2019 and said, hey, I sell one dish and I want to do it out of my driveway. Can you give me $100,000? Mm-hmm. It just wouldn't have happened. But because of the capacity for Los Angeles to be uh, thoughtful about who they want to support during times of the pandemic, we now see that these people are cooking in a way that works for them. And not only are we talking about food, we're also talking about changes in equity. People working, you know, five-day restaurant models where they take two days off for their workers, where they pay overtime, where people are not expected to burn out and to take it or leave it. And that stuff is really, really meaningful in a city that is not only 40% Latino, but is heavily undocumented in its kitchen workforce. The positive changes that are coming out of this have been really remarkable. That's great. I mean, it's funny because I was looking at the Eater LA 38, which for those who don't know is is an constantly updated list of the 38 best. Did you use the word best? I don't even know. We use essential. 38 essential restaurants in Los Angeles. And it's funny to think about like just how the list has changed because I've 
I've been a devotee, devotee of the list for, I mean, as long as I've lived in LA and the same in New York, when I lived in New York with Eater, I'm, I'm very much a fan. Um, and, but what's funny is like scrolling through it now, I've noticed like, it really doesn't feel like white tablecloth restaurants or like the, I mean, for lack of a better word, bougie restaurants are really there as much anymore. I mean, the, the, the number, the first thing that comes up on the list is Cupid's Hot Dogs in Winnetka, California. And then you have um, Baja Subs Market in Delhi. And then you have, and then you have Pasjoli. Is that how you say that? Pasjoli? Pasjoli. Pasjoli, of course, um, which is very fancy, very French. So, I mean, I th- to kind of prove your point that you're making about this exciting time to be in LA, it's, I mean, it's, it's the list itself speaks to that. And I'm curious as, as, an, as the editor of Eater LA, does, is that something that you've been consciously working on and changing the look of the 38? Well, uh, 10 minutes before this, I was in a uh, in-person four-way, three-hour meeting arguing over what restaurants belong on that list. So we are absolutely hmm. doing as much due diligence as possible. The reality is true for us as well as it is anybody else. We cannot be everywhere at once. You cannot try every restaurant. There's 30,000 restaurants in LA County, another 10,000 or so street food vendors and 10 million people. So like, it's way too big of an area. That's not even considered considering that we also dive into Orange County and the Central Coast and things like that. So it's a big, massive question. We're never going to satisfy everyone. I think the stuff that we really look at and try to make sure that we're diving deep in is, um, you know, cultural and geographic representation. You list the maps as like, you know, the first place, the second place. That's because we're, we're actually denoting the maps by geography moving north to south. We don't rank our list. People still over time tend to believe that, oh, how could Pajoli be the only the third best restaurant or something like that? You know, it's a, it, it's a complicated question because there's just too much great stuff. And are we talking about street tacos versus a taco restaurant versus a sit down with Hawken restaurant and why can't we have all three if we are 40% Latino and, you know, do we need to represent uh, Mother Wolf, which is a new-ish restaurant, but also where Jay-Z and the Obamas eat at it. Is that meaningful in a different way? What about the polo lounge? So there's a million different ways to kind of slice that onion. And frankly, it's part of what makes the jobs so fun. Well, it seems to me there's like two kinds of people that would turn to look for a list like this. One is somebody who's coming to LA, who's only here for a short time and wants to know where to eat. And then there's the people who live in LA who've been to all those places and want to know, okay, now where where do I really need to go to eat? And it's almost like, I mean, Jonathan Gold isn't with us anymore, but I feel like he always wrote for the latter audience. It was he was he wasn't telling the business traveler from you know New York or Chicago who's coming in with like a huge paycheck and wanting to you know spend a lot of money on dinner where to eat. He was telling people who truly love food who lived in the city like you've got to go in this hole to this hole in the wall. So it feels like your list kind of encompasses both things. It's like certainly like on the Eater 38 are places that I would tell people who are visiting LA, especially like Republic would probably be the most recommended restaurant for, by, by pretty much everybody. I mean, from Bill Addison and his 101 to uh, Eater, I th- I'm sure the infatuation does too. So I guess maybe a, a good question is starting with that category, the category of the business traveler or the person who's coming here, who has some money, who's been to like, quote unquote, the top restaurants in the country. <laughs> what are the places that, that are on the list that you would send them? Yeah, I, I think even within that, you're, you're lensing in a particular type of way, right? There are uh, 
very wealthy black travelers who might come and have a completely different experience eating in other parts of town than very wealthy white travelers or international Mm -hmm. travelers or whatever. So uh, there really is no one kind of catch all for the traveling diner to Los Angeles that is coming to look at this list. I think Pajoli is a great kind of stand-in for this type of dining. It is extraordinarily eyebrow-racingly expensive. It is also extraordinarily delicious. And the way that they make you feel in a restaurant like that with touches of service and little steps of beauty and people coming and changing your silverware and things like that can really make uh, or break a fine dining night out for a family that maybe is only eating out a couple of times a year like this or Mm -hmm. a traveler with a bunch of money to spend. I think what Josiah Citroen does, Elise and Citroen, I think Providence, you know, restaurants like this might come and go on a list like the Essential 38 over time because there's too many places to talk about. They always offer an indelible upscale experience for people who are really excited about going and spending a little more money. To, to further the point, I guess the only other thing I would say is there is a style of dining that I think is relatively unique to Los Angeles. New York certainly has some, but if you look at horses on Sunset right now, just got mm-hmm. a review in the New York Times. I think there's maybe no more energetic restaurant in Los Angeles right now. And it feels as casual as you please. There's a bar side to it where somebody in sandals and board shorts is hanging out eating a burger. And then at the back is Oscar Isaac eating a steak with two friends. And the fact Mm -hmm. that it's all under one roof feels kind of only possible in LA. And it makes it upscale egalitarian. You know, you're still going to spend a lot of money, but it does feel approachable. I like that upscale egalitarian. That's a good category. It's funny because I ate at horses early, early on and I liked it. And I would never have guessed that it was going to become such a destination. I mean, and reading Tejal Rao's article about it really opened my eyes actually to what was special about it, which is funny because I'm a big cook. Like I I spend most of my time cooking, but I didn't realize how chef-y the food was, Mm -hmm. I guess. Like I I didn't realize how much work was going into it. So now I'm kind of reevaluating my own experience there and be like, oh, maybe I didn't notice all the stuff that was happening. But I loved the atmosphere. And to your point, like it was really like a very L.A. experience eating there. So. Yes. Well, I think I think it's interesting because it's like I I don't even know what words to use to describe because I think you make a very good point about we don't know what you know which travelers who and who's going where and why they're going where, but I guess like for me when I'm I I mean this is a confession I just really like sitting. (laughs) 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 I don't like standing. Yeah. So. I, I just like restaurants where you can sit. That's my category. That's the lens through which I look at things. So if there's a chair and there's a fork and a knife or some or chopsticks or whatever, just like that, I'm very happy. Yeah. So what are the places on this list or even in your debate today? Like what are the what are the ones that are always sort of in the mix? Like what are the ones that are always talked about and always sort of put on the list, taken off back and forth? Yeah, I think that's a, a really Interesting question. I think a restaurant like Langer's is always mm-hmm. going to be hard to pull off the list. Most people would agree you can have a Langer's versus Katz's debate if you want to. Most people, I think, would agree that Langer's is the superior place to get a sandwich. Whether or not you think the vibe is everything that Katz's can be, your mileage may vary on that front. Ray Public, similar. There is maybe no more multifunctional restaurant in Los Angeles than Ray Public. I think it works for a graduation dinner with your parents. It works for an anniversary. It works for a Saturday brunch where you want to take a bunch of selfies. And to be able to do under that all that under one roof is really remarkable. We've got taco places like Mauricio Salisco, that are, I think, indelible to Los Angeles. 
ultimately, I don't believe that any restaurant is unimpeachable. There should be, and I think needs to be room for every single point on a map like the Essential 38 to be able to move around. And just to backtrack slightly, you know, we're talking about one half of the map is maybe targeted towards people who are out of town and the other half is targeted towards people who are in town. I think even within a place as large as Los Angeles, I find at least a lot of times my friends will ask me what the quote unquote best version of something is. What's the best Thai restaurant or the best burger? And I will tell them what I think the absolute best is and I'll watch their eyes glaze over because they're not going to drive to the place that I recommended because it seems too far or not in their neighborhood. I think a lot of times people don't want the best they want the goodest in their neighborhood. And so if yeah. you, the, the map can can sometimes fill that need too. People go, you know, we've got to have three restaurants. I'm just speaking colloquially here. We've got to have, say, three restaurants downtown because some people just aren't going to go to Venice no matter how delicious the restaurant is. Well, that's funny because Ryan Sutton from Eater New York was on my podcast talking about New York restaurants and I asked him the best pizza and his answer was, it's the pizza in your neighborhood mm -hmm. and it was his neighborhood pizza. So, I mean, now before we had this interview, I emailed you and told you I was going to ask you questions at the end, which I still am, but you sort of kind of deflected from the idea of asking you the best burger, the best pizza, stuff, but you just said your friends ask you that. So, Oh, it's, it's never no. ending. Yeah. I mean, people still yeah. think I'm a food critic like you. No, the, yeah. the, the job comes with certain pitfalls you can't escape. So um, best is a shorthand that has been used for long enough that it is indelible to talking about food, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Every conversation, if you are on like the Ask Los Angeles or the, or the Los Angeles food subreddit or something, every conversation, every photo that gets posted about a restaurant includes a price. And someone in that comment section will tell you that that price is too expensive for what you're eating. It happens 100% sure. of the time. So yeah. If, if already we can't even agree on what price makes something worthwhile, then I think there's no way that we can then venture into territory of personal preference or taste or cuisines or neighborhoods, things like that. Best is a meaningless term that is trying to arrive at a bigger point, which is what is good, what is valuable to me, and how can I go experience that in an easy and comfortable way? Got it. Well, I think what I think the d distinction I would make is that I, I I wouldn't be asking you Farley what is the best burger in LA. It would be like what Farley do you enjoy? Like what's the burger you enjoy the most in LA? Yeah, and that's a much better question already. What I had said over email is like, you know, I have a dining budget. My job is to be out spending money at restaurants, so I don't actually become quote unquote, a regular at, at many places at all. There are restaurants that I like and some that I dislike for a variety of reasons. But if I'm spending nights going back to the same places, I'm not building new relationships. I'm not going deeper in my side as a journalist and trying to know more information. And so it's ultimately kind of bad for business. It makes a more lonely life, I guess, traipsing around right. semi-anonymously in Los Angeles. My wife is very sick of meeting out with me because I'm always going farther and eating more, but that's okay. This is what we signed up for. <laughs> so now before we get on with more LA restaurant stuff, maybe a little background about you. Like, did, are you from LA originally? I'm not. I'm from a very, very small town in Northern New York, all the way up on the Canadian border, about 20 minutes from Canada. Um, I grew up on a dairy farm that went under when I was um, eight or nine years old. I'm one of six kids. My my family business became, my father was one of nine kids, um, became what my uncle had started, was, which was a, a lumberjacking company with uh, my dad. And so my father went into that business. My uncle fortunately passed away. And so now my dad runs the business. My last name is Elliot. It's literally Elliot and Sons. Like I'm the, oh, wow. I, I'm the only one who doesn't do it. I'm the first person to like, you know, graduate from a four-year university and leave my home 
town and all that sort of stuff. So it's a, I'm a little bit of a black sheep in that sense. Sure. Join the club. I feel like a lot of, I feel like a lot of food writers are black sheep. So I, my parents, you know, still have no idea what I do for a living. They're still like, you know, why, why can't you be a doctor? And I'm 43 years old. So <laughs> of course. I get it. I, I, I wrote a book in 2015. That's all about the history of street food in Los Angeles from like the 1800s to today. And I think that was kind of the first thing. It was a physical copy that had my name on it. My photo appeared on the back and could take it around and show people in my small town. I don't really know what he does day to day, but this has been printed and that's meaningful, you know? Yeah. So does your family come visit you in LA and where do you take them when they come? Oh, you are entering a Pandora's box. So they came out to uh, Los Angeles in December for the first time in seven years. It's, it's, it's hard, you know, Syracuse is an hour away and then you got to fly from there and it's usually two connections and they just, they're not comfortable with LA. So we had a real long conversation, my wife and I, about where to take them because it was important to me that I showed them restaurants that I felt were representative of Los Angeles, but that did not make them feel uncomfortable. As far as I know, mm-hmm. my father has never had sushi in his life, and I don't think that he ever will. Taking him to a spicy Thai restaurant is out of the question. So what can we do to massage, you know? Yeah. And by way of example, I, the last meal, the bags are packed. We're in the back of the car. I'm going to take him to the airport afterwards. We ate at you. Union in Pasadena, which is a fine, yeah, yeah, Italian, California kind of place. And I thought they've got spaghetti and meatballs. We're going to get through this just fine. And I swear to God, this is true. I love my stepmother. She sits down, looks at the menu and goes, I don't see chicken Alfredo here. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I didn't go far enough, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah. I mean, my parents are Jews from Boca Raton, Florida, and they similarly like my dad's a meat and potatoes guy. So mm-hmm. he likes but he but they do like the fancier like meat and potatoes places like he loves cut by Wolfgang Puck. Got it. So like so like he'll do that. But, you know, if I t- he thinks Republic is weird. Yes. Like, yes. He's like his his like thing. He'll, he always says this. He's like, there's nothing I could eat on this menu. And it's like, dad, <laughs> it's like it's 90 like, dad, things on the menu. Yeah, I know. It's like chicken, fish, <laughs> duck, beef. Like it's literally all the same things. It just has different words. And so, so I totally relate to that. I mean, do you feel like there's a part of you where there's a form of rebellion in being so interested in food or you think it's just, it's not so much a psych- I'm turning this into my old podcast, which was psychological, but I'm just curious because coming from where you come from, like is in terms of being the black sheep, I mean, was this sort of something that you were going to do no matter what, or was there an element of like break, want, wanting to break away? No, I'll, I'll tell you my not so secret. Like in my hometown, there's zero restaurants. There's one stoplight right. and no actual place to sit down and eat. That's not your home. So mm-hmm. um, for me growing up, Eating was more process of being a home cook or, you know, one of six kids on a big sprawling farm. It's a little catch as catch can. And so uh, I didn't really start to enjoy food or really what food means to communities until I got to Los Angeles. I, I believe firmly that I like restaurants, you know, but I love the people and I love the sounds and I love what restaurants mean mm-hmm. for those who come and dine. Um, the food, I won't say is an afterthought, but it is certainly not at the top of the list for reasons why we should care about dining places in America. So with, mm-hmm. within that lens, I use restaurants, hopefully, as a way to talk about, sure, breaking news and some maps and service journalism, but also why people are impassioned the way that they are to follow their dreams and to use food as a final vehicle for that. You know, the the folks who are creating something new out of whole cloth and giving it to an excited and eager audience and 
telling their story in the process is what makes a city like Los Angeles so meaningful. It's so funny to hear you talk because, I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember when Eater.com started and Ben Leventhal and Lockhart Steele. I mean, we were all contemporaries because I, I was doing my food blog back in 2004. And to think about like what their mission was at the very beginning from like what you just articulated, it's so 180. I mean, Eater was like a gossip site at the beginning, basically. I mean, it had all this information, but it was literally like, you know, we saw Mario Batali at the bar of the Spotted Pig, like groping, I mean, whatever it was. They they, they used to absolutely have a a rule that that food photography, like quote unquote food porn, was not going to be the lead image on any story that you wrote on Eater, that it was about essentially the physical spaces and the people who make them up and not the food at all. And that is, you're right, a huge departure to where we are now. Yeah. And and I'm thankful for it. I, I got hired in 2015 for eaters here in Los Angeles, and I have seen the site change tremendously. I am no longer going around to half-finished construction sites and poking my nose in with a camera. I get to right. ask deeper questions, you know, and I've built up relationships that hopefully make my job a little easier and a little more palatable for a wider audience. Yeah, it's incredible how Eater has become so reputable and and so well-respected in the industry in a different kind of way, because it always was. I mean, everyone always read it. but And I feel like what you're doing right now is is really great because it's sort of feels of the moment. It feels like kind of the, the mood the country is in, right? or you know, at least liberal-minded people in the country <laughs> are in, in terms of wanting to experience new, new things and, and not necessarily put white, straight chefs on the pedestal exclusively. Speaking of which, so I was going to bring up Wolfgang Puck, and I don't know why I'm bringing him up, but I just feel like Wolfgang Puck is an important person to talk about in this conversation about LA and food and restaurants and dining because he's been here since like the 70s when he had Mame Zone. Then in the 80s, it was Spago. And then now in 2022, Wolfgang Puck is still here in LA opening new restaurants. I mean, he has Merois at um, the Pendry Hotel. Mm-hmm. He, ha- he still has Spago. He still has Cut. I mean, how for you is it like, how do you think about Wolfgang Puck's relevance in 2022? It's a great question. I'm almost of two minds of it myself. If you go at Spago, at, sit at the bar, order the now famously off-menu salmon pizza um, and have a drink, after a while, Wolfgang Puck will move through the room. He might even stop to say hi to you. That is very unusual for people of his stature who have soups in your local grocery aisle. The fact that he is still out there doing it the way that he does is remarkable and absolutely should continue to be savored and enjoyed. I will say you reach a certain point where there's a kind of ubiquity in your name. He cooks for the Oscars every year. He is everywhere. He's got his documentary on uh, Disney Plus or whatever. Like The fact that everyone kind of knows Wolfgang Puck does offer the ability for us to not have to talk about Wolfgang Puck as much and to try to open up space and make room for others. But it's a delicate balance. I once received a phone call from a very prominent Orange County restaurateur that I I won't name here, who asked me point blank, how come you hate me and my restaurants? Because he believed that we weren't talking about them enough. And I was like, I think if anybody were to be asked the question, where do I eat in Orange County? Your restaurant is the first one that they would name. And to me, that's a kind of ubiquity that anybody else would kill for. So we don't need to talk about them all the time. But these folks have money on the line. They have ego on the line. There's a lot more to it for them. And so uh, Wolfgang Puck's team still emails us all the time, wanting coverage or wondering why they're not on some map, even though his face is on the chicken noodle soup I'm eating for dinner tonight. 
<laughs> so I'm curious. I mean, you bring this up and, and I hadn't really thought about it, but what is the relationship between what you do and I guess like PR and 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 sort of the zeitgeisty nature of, of chef fame in 2022? I mean, it just feels like you must get pestered constantly. And then how do you handle that? I mean, I pestered you when I started my YouTube show and you were very nice about it because <laughs> um, we were able to get it on there. But um, but I guess I'm like, how much of your day is taken up with like fielding people's requests for either to cover them and how much is just you independently seeking out what's new and interesting and exciting? So I get hundreds of emails a day from PR people and independent restaurant operators. That's a part of the job. And like I said, I, I don't begrudge anybody for sending those emails. And frankly, you should, because I, I want to be seen as an approachable person. We've all independently in our lives had those times where you email over a problem that went wrong over a package that got mislabeled or something, or you tried to find mm-hmm. out uh, a person to talk to at your cell phone store and there you just never get anywhere. And that is the most mm-hmm. frustrating thing in the world. So, you know, if you email me and my name appears at the top, I will absolutely respond. Um, to the broader question of like PR in general, I absolutely think they have an important role to play. Uh, I work with PR people all the time. It's not that they're, you know, I'm agreeing to let them position stories. They're not writing stories. We sometimes take a really critical lens. I have to be in the room sometimes with PR people and tell them that I think their restaurant is bad or uh, active, really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Or actively harming the industry or whatever the case may be. Oh my God. <laughs> that's, that's part of the job. But specific to Los Angeles, the vast majority of restaurants here don't have PR and never will. I might not even know what Eater is. So if I'm only talking about PR restaurants, I'm not doing my job. And we need to put stories at the feet of people who are already out there dining. Sometimes that's Somali lady at the bus stop at 7 a.m. And sometimes that's Pajo Lee from fancy chefs who moved out here from Chicago and have a big arsenal of PR people behind them. It's all possible. We're not running out of internet. You know, we can write about it all. And yet there's even some harm that can come from shining a light on a lesser known spot. I'm thinking of that place totally, oh, Spoon by Eight, Mm -hmm. um, where they got really popular. I think David Chang also highlighted them on Mm -hmm. his uh, Instagram. But then they sort of got slammed by by like huge orders that people would, would make and then not pick up. So it's it's just it's fascinating to see what happens sometimes when a light is shine on a small place that can't handle that acclaim necessarily or it's maybe even too much for them. So yeah. is Let, that some, is that something that you wrestle with too? Of course. I was going to say let's go one level deeper. Let's talk about unlicensed street food vendors in Los Angeles County. These are people who are not even always documented to be in the United States quote unquote legally. And so in that sense you are up against the real moral question as to whether or not you talk about these people. I I operate from the position of these are adults in the room who are exchanging food for money in a public space. The more food that they can sell, the more money that they can make. And that's why they're out there doing it. As long as Mm -hmm. I am really clear-eyed in that vision and I am translating that vision to that person as to who I am, and they believe that that's fine for their business or that that's what they want is to make more money, then I think we're all on the same page. Unfortunately, we wrote about City Avenue 26 Street Food Night Market, which was really popular in Lincoln Heights here in Los Angeles for a while. And it sort of blown up during the latter stages of the pandemic last winter uh, because of TikTok and people going and making fun videos there. Absolutely unlicensed. They had people selling alcohol. It was trash. It was also family friendly earlier in the day. It's like everything in the world, it's kind of a whole bunch of things at once, some good, some bad. And a few weeks after our article, the city came and moved to shut it down because there had been an outcry about such a large public thing that was happening. 
I don't blame myself for Avenue 26 shutting down. I think we play a role in amplifying that. Every vendor that I talked to, every person that I spoke with there understood those risks, which is why they were publicly selling in the first place. And they were willing to trade off that risk for more money that a publication like Eater can bring in. Yeah, I'm sure it's a tricky dance that you're doing, mm-hmm. but you're doing it as ethically as you can. I'm curious mm-hmm. earlier when you were talking about dealing with PR people and <laughs> saying that your restaurant is actively bad for the industry. <laughs> I, I have to ask you, like, what does that mean? Like, what is an example of a restaurant that is actively bad for the industry? Um, I'll only speak for myself in this sense. Uh, I think that the model of ghost kitchen where a heavily branded personality attaches their name to a menu and then a sub company takes that menu, take say SBE, for example, some of their large corporation with their C3 concept, they take that menu to a small town and they say, hey, relatively unknown Thai restaurant, you are not as busy as you could be out here in Wichita, Kansas. So we're going to give you this menu from YouTube personality, Mr. Beast. And we're going to tell you (laughs) to like teach you how to make these burgers. And we're going to package all of it together and ship it to you. And all you need to do is put stickers on the back. And that way, when someone goes looking for a Mr. Beast burger in Wichita, Kansas, it'll come from your restaurant. It'll have our labeling. I think that sort of nefarious stuff is literally creating a real-time sharecropper model in the restaurant industry where people are Mm. reliant on financial overlords and people with big branded personalities on YouTube or Instagram or because they became rappers or actors to then sell that product and essentially a loss or at least a much thinner profit margin than they could their own food. And it's even worse if you're a burger restaurant that isn't that busy in Wichita, Kansas, and Mr. Beast comes along, because then you have to try to battle on the app selling your own burger at an elevated price because you don't get the sort of subsidies that come with big corporations and with none wow. of the branding or advertising. So you just become beholden to someone else's name and you never absolutely get to make the actual profit that you should be making in the first place. I had no idea. See, it's funny because it, <laughs> it's making me think about what it means to be a food writer or editor in 2022. It feels like it's, it's come a long way from like Ruth Reichel and, you know, Jonathan Gold writing in the 70s about like, you know, driving along the California coast and eating abalone or something. It's like, I, I literally, it's, I started the, I feel like I started in the industry being like, hot dogs are good. I wonder who agrees with me. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I mean, there's a lot for you to think about now. And and I guess like what is like I guess for you when when you're thinking about the politics of everything and the and what's good good for the chefs and what's good for the the businesses, like at the end of the day, like how much of it is it just about the food? I mean, I, because I'm not a food critic, I don't write it a first person at all. I'm not anonymous. My job is to be out building relationships and getting to know people so that when those people choose to share their story, either of an existing place or their background or of a new place they're going to open, they tell me that first. Right. In, in that sense, I don't ever say, I thought the green beans were bad or I thought the burger was good. The closest we come is some level of curation on things like maps. You know, here's 38 essential restaurants for Los Angeles, here's 12 places to get a breakfast burrito. But that's about it. I don't have Bill Addison's job. And frankly, I would want Bill Addison's job because it's very, very hard. And the way that mm-hmm. he is thoughtful about flavors and histories is not something that I necessarily have a brain for. So having great food matters, but 
oftentimes it's like the fifth most important thing that I think about when it comes to a restaurant. Mm. And we talk about restaurants that are two years out from opening. You know, if you look at Lincoln Carson's Mezami or Mother Wolf or David Chang bringing Major Domo here, these are all projects that we started talking about at least 18 months before they even opened. And so there's a way to try the food if it even exists at that time. Well, you, yeah, it's interesting. You kind of alluded earlier to the pandemic of it all and how that affected or how that just changed the whole dynamics of LA dining and that people could cook at home and sell their, their products. I'm curious, like, how did the pandemic impact the restaurant scene? And in terms of like the hierarchy, for lack of a better word, or for the kinds of restaurants that were popular before the pandemic, and now what is popular after the pandemic, what shifted? I think that like I said before, we've seen a lot of growth in that lower end where people were able to take one or two items that they really enjoyed and expand that out into a huge business. I think the kind of everyday mom and pop neighborhood restaurants are still struggling, especially in this immediate moment with raising their prices because of increased costs for labor and beef and imports and all this sort of stuff. Um, I dinnered a restaurant last night, a kind of casual neighborhood Italian place, and they had laminated their menus. And I was like, That's a very bold choice in this day and age, not only because it kind of feels very chain restaurant-y, but also because it means you're not changing those prices for a while. And when Mm. the the price of of produce is fluctuating as wildly as it is because of pandemic-related stuff, uh, you have got to agree that that price is going to still suit your neighborhood. And I think those people are up against it. If they do go and make new menus and raise their prices by 10 bucks, eight bucks, five bucks, are folks going to stop coming by? The people Mm -hmm. who are eating at at Mother Wolf or Horses or Pajoli or Citroen, those are folks with money to spend and they know exactly what they're getting into. And at those places, you can feel an energy and a kind of release that has been maybe two years coming. It's just the the places slightly down market that are still going to be challenged. Okay, I have a sticky, controversial question, so this might be kind of fun. But I'm blanking on the name of the restaurant, so you'll have to fill it in. The one that's like futuristic in like a tower. Vespertine. Vespertine. Okay. So my question is, there was a big takedown of Vespertine. I don't know if takedown is the right word, but the calling out of Vespertine on Eater LA, correct? Mm Mm-hmm. Was it Kathy Chaplin who wrote it? Yes where basically the chef's behavior was questioned. Um, there was a, I mean, I read the article. I thought it was a really well-written article, and it really went into this sort of abusive culture where one of the chefs that was working for Jordan Kahn, who's the head chef there, committed suicide, and it was sort of exploring that. And I guess my question to you is, as an editor uh, in 2022, it's like, what is the impact now of these stories and are they having the same impact that they had a couple of years ago with Mario Batali and Ken Friedman at the Spotted Pig? Like, is this kind of story still, you know, basically causing chef, ending chefs careers or is it not doesn't not have the same traction as it once did? I think every story is unique in a sense. I think if the Mario Batali story dropped today as opposed to several years ago, it would still have the same overall impact that it did. I don't think that the quote-unquote movement has moved on or anything like that. Uh, The unfortunate reality is, and maybe it's not even unfortunate, uh, I believe more and more that the average diner in many cases is somewhere between, I didn't know about this problem and I don't care that this problem exists. That's not everybody. The idea that you know, every diner that goes to Vespertine or has ever eaten at Vespertine is going to read an 8,000 word article asking very large and contemplative questions about what is the nature of pushing for perfection, uh, I think is an unreasonable request to make of people who have a lot of other demands on their time. And so I tend to 
instead look at it as context building. Every Vespertine story or Jordan Kong story we write here on out is probably going to include a link back to that original story to allow readers to explore it for themselves. And the folks who did catch it the first time around have questions that they will ask themselves about whether or not supporting a chef like Jordan Conn is, is quote unquote worth it for them. Some people say yes, some people say no, and they absolutely don't care. Uh, I'm not out specifically to cancel any chef or any business. I am out to offer the kind of important and journalistic context that makes talking about a restaurant worthwhile for our average diner and reader. And what about you? I mean, I don't know if you can answer this in your position, but what will, would you eat at Vespertine now having read that article? I'm not personally interested in eating at Vespertine again for a variety of reasons. Um, some of which have to do with that story and some of which don't. Uh, I also think that Vespertine is one of those places like uh, uh, Moza that we have talked about extensively over the years and has a relevant place in Los Angeles. It just doesn't necessarily need my time or money right now as I've got other things to focus on. Moza is interesting because it's one of my favorites and I love Kisbaka specifically, the their meat restaurant. But it was a little thorny with the Mario Batali of it all when he was sort of entangled with, with them and Nancy Silverton, who I love, but... You know, it just gets so complicated in this day and age now to sort of parse like who's ethical, who's not ethical, who, you know, which chef do I want to support, who, who, who's getting this money. You know, it's, it's, sometimes it gets really complicated. So I guess that's another new hat that a food editor and writer has to wear in 2022 that Ruth Reichel and Jonathan Gold didn't necessarily wear back in the 70s. Yes, absolutely. And it should also be said, there are lots of stories that fall in that Vespertine vein that do not necessarily get across the finish line from a legal standpoint or an ethics regular journalism standpoint. You know, there are potentially bad actors out there all the time that do not get mentioned in stories like this because uh, people are afraid to come forward or you just can't get the, all the facts together to make it work or something like that. Um, so I fall back on what I said a minute ago. The context is what really ultimately matters. People should know that, you know, Nancy Silverton co-authored an op-ed during the pandemic that called protesters during the um, George Floyd uh, unrest and police brutality protests called them cockroaches because her restaurant yeah. was partially broken into. As long as people know that that happened and are still willing to eat at Moza, I think in some sense that's fine because they are at least a knowledgeable audience. What I don't think is okay is not bringing that knowledge up in the first place. My take on that was that her boyfriend wrote that piece and then she just sort of signed off on it and didn't really read it like because he's because he's kind of a blogger that guy right he's like he's like uh kind of he has like a funny yes and he used to be a crime reporter and he, right. he thinks himself a sort of like digital writer as well uh the reality is you know nancy silverton has restaurants all over the world and her byline appears on that story as much as yeah. his does so you there's no, a reckoning no, that, right. that, that, that does happen yeah. there you know no, it's true. Well, we're about to end this first half of the of the conversation, which is free for people. And then I'm going to ask you 10 specific LA dining questions. So before we end the free portion, to be more egalitarian, are there any things you want to get in for the free listeners uh, that we didn't cover? Any restaurants that you're excited about right now that you think people should be aware of who live in LA? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. I've been really 
struck by what Lincoln Carson has been able to do at the new Mezami in Hollywood to uh, be a guy that was able to finally get a restaurant of his own just before the pandemic started in national acclaim, see that restaurant disappear as a direct result of the pandemic, and then come back and kind of reclaim space that was left for him to make an old French brasserie kind of big Hollywood position happen on the same block as a place like Mother Wolf and to seem truly happy again. You know, those are the kind of stories I tend to be rooting for. If you're just looking for great bites, um, I still contend El Russo in Silver Lake is some of the best tacos and flour tortillas that you can have in Los Angeles. And I would also just encourage people to spend more time dining in South LA, spend more time dining in Long Beach. And I know this is a big bad word for many people for Eater LA. I think spend more time dining in Orange County. There are, you know, three and a half million people, 8,000 restaurants. It's a tremendous opportunity for uh, youthful movements, Vietnamese, Filipino people doing all sorts of fantastic stuff. It's a drive. I completely hear you. I think you could have a lot of fun down there. I'm embarrassed to say I've never driven to Orange County for a meal ever. Wow. Well, see, if I can convert you, I've done my job. So where do I go? Okay, where's my first stop if I take a day trip to Orange County? Well, Taco Maria, obviously, is a fantastic uh, option. Uh, I think what's happening in Fountain Valley with the Kai Concepts people, Vox Kitchen is really fantastic. They've got a ramen spot in that same plaza and are just opening up a third restaurant there called Eni Ristorante, which is the kind of uh, Tokyo Italian place. There's just a vibrancy and energy that's there. Uh, Nep Cafe as well, not far away, that is really just hard to replicate. And then you get down to San Juan Capistrano, where say Heritage Barbecue is, and they're doing some of the most um, authentic, legalized, fully Texas-style barbecue that you're going to find in California. They're probably one of the three best barbecue places in the state, also including Moose Craft Barbecue here in Los Angeles. So it's a, a remarkable time to be eating in Orange County, but it is a halt, I agree. All right. Well, thank you so much, Farley. This part, part one of this podcast is over. And now if you'll stick around, I'm going to ask you some fun LA food questions. Of course. Thanks for having me.